Hey, my name is Paul. I get to teach as one of the pastors here. Um, but I want to tell you about an interview I actually had. I was on the phone a couple weeks ago. Jensen and I, she's with our college minister, was on the phone with um, a gal who uh, was interviewing us on behalf of like the LGBTQ community. She's a part of a different church and had some questions for us as a church. And she had two questions. And it was one, what do you guys think about the LGBTQIA+, um, and if you're not familiar with that, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, those two terms are used um, also, intersex, asexual, and then the plus at the end for any orientations that haven't yet been discovered. That's kind of the background of, of that movement. What do you guys think about that? And then if someone were to come and they were affirming that was who they were, how would this church respond to their presence in the room? Legitimate questions, super sweet. What would you say? How should I answer? What's God's word say about those things? And I bring that up honestly because the passage that we're opening in the scriptures today isn't that exact thing, but it's another expression of sexuality that was happening in culture at that time that maybe isn't as popular right now as, as the LGBTQ movement. We'll see what it was about in just a moment. But what does God's word say about such things? We live in a culture where up is down and right is left and right is wrong. I mean, it, it, is, it is turned around. What does God's word say? How would he cause us to live? And so if you're curious about that, God's word begins to speak those things this morning. You came on a great day. I hope you don't get up and leave. Um, I hope you will listen to what God has to say. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. So I'm going to, uh, with that introduction, read the first uh, 13 verses, actually just the chapter. It's a short chapter, and we'll get into these, uh, these issues. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife be his mom or his mother-in-law. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders, remove the evil person from among you. All right, I wanna get into this passage one verse at a time, and I wanna first give a little historical context to what's going on. Guys, in that day and age, things were not so dissimilar from now. 
people have had different values and different views of their sexual morality throughout history. Okay, we could jump back into first century Rome and go, what were they like? What were men like then? Men typically had four avenues simultaneously for their sexual pleasure. You had a wife, you had a mistress, some woman who wasn't married. You had an adulterous affair with someone who was married and you had a boy. That, that was Roman culture. And there might be some parts that you no, not that one, but that one and not that and certainly not that, but that. Okay, that's, that, was, that was Rome at the time. Corinth, if you jumped over to that place, and I've been to Corinth, it was known for immorality. In fact, a highlightable feature in Corinth was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. There were a thousand temple prostitutes at one time just servicing the men of Corinth. In fact, it got so bad in Corinth that they actually took the name of the city Corinth and made it into a verb. To Corinthianize meant to live with gross sexual immorality and to be drunk. It was just so popular in culture, they, they named a verb after how they were living in that culture. And so probably it wouldn't surprise you that when the Apostle Paul comes and he brings the gospel to Corinth, and people began being believers, they were already mixed up in all that. Just like me, when I came to know Christ at 17, I was living exactly how I was before I came to know Christ, and I was so turned around about so much things related to purity and immorality. The, the Corinthian believers at first were acting just like the only way they knew how to act, which was how their culture acted. They believed what their culture believed. This was a culture of Corinth, but listen to this. God is showing them and showing us how to apply the gospel to all of life. God was showing them and showing us that we are called to live out the purity, get this, that we already have in Christ. We're called to live out a sexual purity that we already have spiritually with God. Put it another way, from gospel purity comes sexual purity. And they didn't know that. They didn't know that God already sees you as pure because your faith is in Christ. All your sins have been forgiven. God views you as pure. Now, live out that purity in all ways. The gospel wasn't meant just to get you to heaven. It was meant to bring you joy and life and to represent him on this earth. It was a big idea. I, I actually see very clearly in text right away, and, I, and I'll throw it on the, have it thrown on the screen. It's simply this. Our sexual purity flows from our gospel purity. You're going to hear that again and again throughout our text. Now, I want to ask three questions as we approach the text, and then I'm going to go through it kind of verse by verse. Three main questions are driving this, and, and th these will be up in time on the screen. Number one, what is sexual immorality in God's eyes? Is it what they called immorality? Is it what our culture calls immorality? How do we define that? And, and who, what does God mean by that? What's sexual immorality? Two, what's the right and the wrong way for Christians to respond to immorality when they find it in the church. And, and I don't mean just like, ah, oh, someone who wants to walk in purity and isn't. I mean someone who's boldly sinning against what God wants. Like, how should the church respond to that person? What's the right and the wrong way to do that? And then last, why? Why should the church pursue sexual purity at all costs? Okay, that's where we're going. First five verses, let me, let me reread them and then, and then slow it down. It, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles, a man of sleeping with his father's wife and you're arrogant. 
Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit as the one present with you in this way. I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his body might be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul said, this has actually been reported to me. If you remember early from the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul was the one who started the church, but then he left and was doing other things, and he got a bad report about them. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.11 says, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. And maybe in that same report, not only rivalry, sexual morality, in fact, this is what's going on. Paul had heard at a distance a bad report. He is writing to them to address issues that he had been made aware of. And he says, here's what's been reported, that there is a sexual immorality among you. In fact, so bad, it's not even like this among people who don't know God. (laughs) Sexual immorality. Now, question number one, what is sexual immorality in God's eyes? Like we gotta go back to what, what does God say about this? Sexual immorality, it's the broadest term you have for immorality in the Bible. The Greek term is pornea. I'm sure you hear porn in that or pornography in that. Pornea, what is pornea in God's eyes? Guys, sexual immorality, pornea in God's eyes is anything sexual outside of God's intention of one man and one woman in marriage for a lifetime. Anything sexual outside of that, God calls pornea. Whether in action, whether in thought, anything that veers away from God's clear pattern. And guys, there is no other pattern. In the Bible, from cover to cover, God creates man and woman, puts them together safely in the context of marriage, and the enjoyment of sexuality is meant to be beautiful. It strengthens marriage. But outside of that, every expression of our sexuality outside of that relationship is destructive. And we know it, don't we? We know about the, the, the shame, the guilt, the, the broken relationships that come from that. Some of you, like me, parents, you, you're from parents who divorced over this very thing, adultery or whatever it is. You know about this stuff. Sexual morality in God's design is anything outside of God's biblical pattern of a man and a woman in marriage. And guess what? There aren't different degrees of it. And some want to say that, even that LGBTQ you know, interview, well, how does the church feel about that? And, and if I could just zoom out for a second, we're, we're stuck in some binary decision that I think is a false dichotomy. Well, either you affirm it or you hate people. I'm like, really? Are those my only two options? <laughs> Celebrate it or hate it? I think God makes it a little bit more complex. We can't say yes where God says no. That's true but there is a way to represent Christ with the complexity of biblical conviction and compassion. We can talk about that because guess what? Immorality in God's eyes is all immorality. And some people, some even Christians, I'm so against a man and a man. And yet they're okay with their pornography where they look at other women, not their wife. And they don't see that as just as broken. Well, okay, okay with that. You can look, but you can't touch. There are differing standards that it seems like people would bring. And here it is. God's word clearly speaks to it. A man and a woman in the context of marriage for a lifetime and everything else outside of every other equation for sexuality is wrong. 
And God goes through those in the scriptures. A man plus a woman, yep. Man plus a man, bad. Man plus lots of women, bad. Uh, man, women plus animals, bad. Man, women, I'm, I'm, guys, they meander so many different ways. And here in our text is a man who is having sex with his mother or mother-in-law. It's unclear which is in view. Incest, also bad. Guys, Roman culture was screwed up. Corinthian thought screwed up, and I get it. We come, and here we find ourselves in a culture that is messed up. Cover to cover in the Bible, it's the only teaching in the scripture. 2,000 years of church history among Protestants and Catholics has been universally, that's been the truth, until about 1960s, where culture is trying to redefine what God's word says. None of it's changed. There's no, been no new discoveries on, oh, the word's actually meant. This isn't a good place to try and make a, a, an argument outside of that. But culture has all this pressure. Guys, culture was different in Rome when it was a man plus his boy plus his, plus his, plus his culture changes. God's word hasn't. And God wants to lead us into a purity that is joy-giving and life-giving. And he's going to do that in the Corinthian church. So, so and, and, I, and I'm also sympathetic to it. Maybe right before I jump into maybe the clarity of the text, I'm sympathetic to it. And I feel like I'm gentle and compassionate when I talk, especially with students who are so turned around with this, because that was me. See, my, my first exposure to this was a pile of pornography underneath my, my parents' bed that I found. And it was confusing, and a little bit disorienting, but there's something exciting about it. And then I never understood anything about what the Bible said about these things. So then it just became a world of exploration, of trying different things and messing around with girls. And there was even some weird stuff with some boys when I was really little. And I thought, well, how do I make sense out of that? And then it was kind of quickly ushered into understanding sexuality from other guys about a year older than me in a men's locker room. Well, they were just as confused as I was. But at the same time, I was just trying to figure this stuff out. And so having no biblical convictions and only trying different things that in the moment sometimes was thrilling, but always produced a level of shame and guilt and quietness and stuff I didn't want to talk to my parents about. And I was actually pretty ashamed about, and I couldn't catch eyes and keep and hold attention with different people that I was with the past weekend. I was a mess and I didn't like it. And as I talked to different people, even in the Christian community who struggle with pornography, no one's proud about that. No one's posting that, ah, oh, this is what I like. There is shame and there is guilt. And I'm sympathetic to it because I kind of like maybe those in Corinth. I came to know Christ at a time where I'm like, I am all turned around. Can someone help me? And I am so excited to be a part of a church that can talk openly. We're authentic. We go there. We go to those places. And I'm seeing men and women step out of those shadows and out of that shame and begin to embrace God's view of sexuality. It is purifying and cleansing and refreshing, finally looking up, finally having joy, finally experiencing forgiveness. I'm excited for that. Okay, let me, let me jump in. How about it has gotten in Corinth, right? Question number two, hey, what's a right and a wrong way for Christians to respond to sexual immorality in the church? Here's a wrong way. You're proud about it. Verse two says, and you are arrogant. And by the way, when it says you are arrogant, it isn't just the guy sexually sinning with his mother or mother-in-law. The you is plural. Y'all are proud about it. So here was the church's response to finding out about that guy's immorality. Yeah, way to go. There was an arrogance, there was a pride in that level of mouth. That's how twisted it was. That's how upside down it was. They were proud about that. Way to go. So immorality in that church was both tolerated and celebrated. You get that? That's what was going on in the church in Corinth. And so while this 
passage does focus on how the church as a corporate entity should respond to someone who is like arrogantly proud of the immoral path they're on. I first want to just say, how should we respond to sexual morality when God makes it clear that's where we're at personally? And, and Paul's going to hit this in the very next chapter. We're going there. That's what we do as a church. We just kind of teach the Bible chapter by chapter. But let me give you a sneak peek into the next chapter. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. How should we personally respond to immorality? Flee. Flee sexual immorality. Run away. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Look, the response there in that passage is flee. Like a squirrel running from a dog, flee, run for your life because your life depends on it, flee. But then why flee? I don't know if you caught the reasoning there. Paul's so clear on this because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we might want to most intuitively say is if I own anything in the world, I own me. (laughs) Steal everything from me, but I am mine. And God would say, that's not true. I'm the creator. I spoke you into creation. I know you. You're mine. And for a Christ follower, oh, and I've purchased you with my blood. That's the price I've paid. You're mine. And you can trust the one with nail-scarred hands to lead you into purity and goodness. Not to take joy from you, but to give it to you. We are not our own. This is not my body, my time, my money. I'm not an owner of anything. I am a steward of everything. And to him, we give an account. We are his. So as it relates to our own purity, flee from immorality because we're not our own. And I just want you to be encouraged, Salt Church, at the fight for purity that I see among men and women. I know about guilt and I know about shame. I'm telling you, though, God is doing a work here. I know, and you can't share the stories. Oh, let me just point this person out, point that person. God is doing a beautiful restorative work in the hearts of people. One guy texted me and he he said this in, in all honesty. He goes, I failed at porn for many years of my life, from childhood to adolescence, dating, engagement, and marriage. I lied about it as well to my parents, friends, and my spouse for many years. Many times I felt so frustrated and ashamed that I wasn't ever going to get out. It has completely wrecked my marriage, porn and my actions, um, uh, sorry, porn and my actions to lie about it have totally hurt and traumatized my wife. And if by God's help, his grace, his discipline has taught me anything, it's that porn robs life, It kills love and doesn't stop until what you are consuming consumes you. Wow, that's an interesting way to put that. It's not a fun thing. It's not a secret that will never affect your life. The only way to be clean is to do what John, John in the Bible said, step into the light because that's where we have fellowship with God and forgiveness of sins and where we are purified from all unrighteousness. And by living according to his word, I would like to say my life is easy now and that everything is better, but it's not. The journey toward recovery and healing restoration is a long one, and I still have to wake up every day for the fight. But knowing this guy, I'm telling you, after months of walking in purity, he's raising his head. There's hope. 
because of the thing that was so crippling and damaging, being set free from. I'm telling you, I am celebrating and walking alongside of many people who are wanting to apply the gospel to all of life, even this area that sometimes has them so turned around, confused, and full of guilt. Men and women, no longer characterized by just all kinds of forms of immorality, but, but finding life in Christ. Look, what should the church's response have been? And by the way, this is not the church responding to someone who's like, I want to walk in purity, I'm just not. The Bible's clear on that one, how to be gracious and gentle. This is, how does, should the church respond to someone who's like, I don't care, I'm being immoral, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a part of this church, but I don't care what God has to say about my sexuality. That, that's this guy, right? How does a church respond to that one? Paul says, you were filled with pride when you should have been filled with grief. You allowed this, this professing Christian to remain a part of your church. That was the wrong thing. He should have been put out of fellowship. Should have been, verse two, remove them from your congregation. Verse five, hand that one over to Satan. What does that mean? It's hard to get it. A phrase like that's only used a couple times in the Bible. It looks like, Put this one back out into the world. They, they identify with a godlessness. Put them back out in that realm. Now, if they're a genuine Christ follower, their body would be destroyed, but their soul saved on the day of judgment. If they, if they don't know Jesus, maybe they would long for the gospel as a result of just their lostness. But God was really concerned for the holiness of the church. And he makes a strong statement. Now, how should Christians respond to someone who's repentant, right? We're seeing an example of bold, arrogant, like pursuing immorality. But what about to the one who's like, I don't want this to be true of me, which is honestly almost everyone I talk to who opens up about these issues. Listen to what Galatians 6 says. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, and that's what it's like, people are so entangled, people are so trapped, people are so not knowing how to, how to move forward. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, there it is. There's the heart of God. The person who's finally open about who they are, that's what they find. They find gentleness and grace. Let me help you. Because by grace, some people are a step or two ahead in this fight for purity. And they can help you if you would be open, if you'd be honest about that. So deal with that person gently. Now be careful that you don't get sucked into that yourself as you're trying to help that person. But in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. You are loving someone tenderly and rightly as you walk them towards truth. See, that's a heart towards someone who will be open about the failure, about the struggles in their dating relationships, in their personal lives. That's the heart of God. And guys, I see it. I see people walking towards purity, and it's so exciting. I mean, and, and the stories. I remember sitting around a table with, with some community men and some students one time, and all these people were being open and honest, and finally one of those places, this student had been quiet the whole time. And uh, finally, he breaks the silence after a long time of silence, and he goes, I have a TV in my trunk. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, like, and what's your name again? Like, I have a TV in my trunk? Um, can you explain maybe what's going on there? And he goes, yeah, I have a TV in my trunk. My parents gave it to me, came to college, but I've only used it in a way that's not honored Christ. It's pulled me down. 
So what I did is I unplugged it. It's in my trunk. <laughs> and I think I'm going to take it home because I'm just not ready to have a TV yet. And I was like, dude, you just like became my hero. Like you, the introvert in the crowd, driving around with a TV in your trunk, like you are willing to do whatever it takes to walk in purity. And I admire that. I'm watching men go against their culture and going, guess what I don't have? Social media off my phone. I'm using it like an original phone. Why? Because right now, it's a pathway to sin for me. And I want to honor God. Men and women, if they need to, breaking up with a relationship, doing whatever to walk in purity because they want to play the long game. They want to honor God. And I am delighting in that and cheering that along and wanting to be in that group, don't you? Yes, gentle towards those who are repentant. But this one who is bold about their morality, yes, deal with that decisively. And why? Why should the church pursue purity at all costs? That's question three. Why should the church be serious about it? Paul's gonna explain that in the next few verses. Verses six through eight, let me reread them. Paul says, you're boasting, that is about that guy's sin, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Stick with me. I'm going to explain some baking in a minute. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." To really understand this part of the passage, which is the crux of the argument, I think, is to have a quick lesson on how to make bread and then a quick lesson from the Old Testament. So stick with me, especially the guys who don't know much about making bread. Maybe no one does. I certainly didn't. So here's what I've learned. Leaven or yeast is like the active ingredient in causing bread to rise. You might not know that. And yeast, I think I have a picture. Okay, those little dots, they're like smaller than like flecks of salt. They're really small. And interestingly, those little dots Dots of yeast have the ability to affect a massive batch of dough. And the technical answer is they consume the sugar in the dough and the byproduct is carbon dioxide, which blows your bread up. Okay, so a little bit of yeast magically works through a huge amount of dough. It affects the whole thing. Paul's developing this idea. A little yeast affects a whole batch of dough. And back then what they would do is they go, oh, we're gonna make a lot more bread. This whole year we're gonna make bread. So we would hold back a little bit of that culture of, of leaven or yeast. People still do this, they call it friendship bread. They like keep this little culture in their fridge and they keep making the next batch with the same concoction, right? And they just kind of keep doing that. And that little bit of yeast keeps going through new batches of dough also. Now keep that in mind, what a little yeast does, how it affects a whole batch of dough. And now let me give you a quick Old Testament lesson. In the Old Testament, they actually, in those times, would hold on to that little starter kit of leaven for a whole year. Okay, I mean, anything that's been in your fridge for a whole year, time to get rid of that, you know, especially if you don't have a fridge back then. But anyways, they would hold on to this, they would hold on to this seriously for a whole year. And then comes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And maybe for sanitary reasons or whatever, they'd be like, that's the time to chuck the old culture. Like at least once a year, they're like, get rid of that. Get that out of the house. We'll start over with something fresh. Now follow this. That happened right before a week of this festival of unleavened bread. Guys, 
a year old yeast, get rid of it, but why? Simply this, yeast in time, back to baking lesson, affects the whole batch of dough. And what God is saying is that yeast, sexual sin is just like that yeast. And if you allow that in the church, even a little bit, and you don't deal with that, you don't talk about that, you don't confront that, you don't address that, it has a way of spreading through the whole batch of dough, the whole church. And God cares about the purity of the whole church. In fact, so much so that he calls the church his bride. And anyone about to get married, right, Dylan, cares about the purity of their bride or almost bride, Sydney. Right? If you were engaged and you're about to get married, how much immorality are you okay with your fiance doing with other people? A little bit? Just one night a week? How much? Nothing, because it's gonna be your bride. And you care about the purity of the one who will be given to you. God cares for the purity of his church, his bride. And how much immorality is he okay with? None of it. God wants purity in his church. And he knows that sexual sin, like cancer, if not dealt with in the body, it spreads throughout the body. It hurts the whole body. So remove it and remove it all. And that's what he's getting at in verse seven. Look at verse seven again. Clean out the old leaven, referring now to that sin, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Look at that for a second. He's saying, deal with sexual immorality so that you would be a pure church. Look, as indeed you are for Christ has been sacrificed. You see it? Be pure because in God's eyes, you already are. Be pure in your life, in your sexuality, in what you think about, in what you do with other people, because you are already pure. And that's the whole big idea. Our sexual purity flows from our gospel purity. God already sees you as pure. It's time to start living that out on Friday nights and Saturday nights and when you're all alone. And when you're alone, even in your thoughts, God wants purity and a purity that would lead you to joy. And why, again, should the church pursue, pursue purity at all costs? I've said it already. We pursue sexual purity as individuals and even confront Christians in the church who are flagrantly going down that path for the purity of the bride. Verse eight says it simply this. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I don't think Paul's saying, get back to observing that week-long festival. I think what he's saying is this, continue to celebrate forgiveness in Christ, what Christ came to do, and do it as pure men and women. Well, the last few verses read in a pretty straightforward manner from that point. Verse nine says this, Paul says, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive person, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Paul's being pretty clear. Those first couple verses, it's simply this. Don't judge non-Christians and expect them to act like Christians. 
actually judge Christians and expect them to act like Christians. You see what he's saying? He's like, don't waste your time over here. God's got that. Let God be God. You don't need to spend your time condemning and kicking out of the church. Actually, they need the gospel. Let people like I was in. Please be, don't be so narrow-minded that you would keep someone out like me who just needed Jesus. Then he'll work in my life. Then he'll cause me to slowly begin to see girls, not as objects, but as sisters. Then maybe he would do a work in my family's life to end the madness of immorality and affairs and broken marriages so he could start something new in the Sabino line. But please let people like me in who just are turned around. I didn't know any better. I just knew what I heard in the locker room and what I saw in pictures and what I experienced. And I was confused. And no one hates my past more than I do. And Paul's saying, stop that, Christians. Stop trying to keep out non-Christians. They're just being like they are. They don't know. They need Jesus. And then you know what? God's going to just gently work with them and help them to apply the gospel to all their life. Please let people like me in. Just need Jesus. But deal radically with the sin that is accepted among you. Don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians, but you can't expect Christians to act like Christians. Because once we know Jesus, he gives us power through the Holy Spirit. And if we'll be open and honest with each other, we can finally start to, to get there, to walk in purity. And if there is flagrant, bold immorality, yes, remove that person. In fact, don't even eat with them. In that culture, to eat with them, to share a meal, kind of said, I accept all of who you are. He's like, don't even eat with them. Make it clear. And I think some people, professing Christians, man, they don't want to let anyone kind of close to their life. They wouldn't be a member of this church or they wouldn't get in close because they just don't want to be found out for who they are. But there are so many and I love the culture of this church that's saying, ah, I want purity. I want to be open. This is a place where I can talk about all kinds of crazy things from my past and find God gently applying the gospel to all of life and setting me free. As we move into communion, a time to celebrate that Jesus came and did it all for us. He was perfectly pure in every interaction every member of every, I mean, he was pure and holy on our behalf. And then he died to remove all of our sins. This is a great time to reflect on our life. It's a great time to ask questions like this. Is what you're choosing to view on your phone and on your Netflix or whatever you dial into, is that helping your purity? Is that reinforcing God's beautiful design of a man and a woman celebrating sexuality in the context of marriage. Is that what that's reinforcing? Or is it working against that? It is insane to think that we are not affected by what we put in our eyes and what we allow in our ears. That's the part we're responsible for, what we view and what we listen to. Are our choices honoring Jesus? Are we okay with him sitting in the room as we watch what we watch and as we view what we view? Are the relationships we're in right now are they pushing us towards moral purity? Dating relationships or even relationships with friends, are they pushing us towards God's standard for sexuality? Or are they pulling us away from it? Some people have some hard decisions they need to make. 
But the answer for the church is this. We have gospel purity through Christ and sexual purity flows from it. And in the power of God's spirit, he can set us free to honor him, to live in a way that's pure and holy. I'm seeing that happen. We're going to have the opportunity. I'm going to have the band come on up and join me. We're going to have the opportunity to take communion. This side has a gluten-free option. There's communion here, here, and also in the back. There's two tables in the back and an aisle way around this side if you need to get there. As we come to the Lord's table to celebrate forgiveness that has been purchased for us, it's an opportunity for us to reflect, an opportunity for us to confess, an opportunity to us, for us to confess sin, maybe one to another, to ask forgiveness if we need to, to say yes, Jesus, and celebrate the gospel purity purchased by Christ that he wants to see flow into a purity that we experience in life. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Um, for the gal who did the interview with Jensen and I, and how exciting was it to, to say that um, there isn't one sin that's any worse than another. And God, we all struggle with desires that bend in a lot of directions. Thank you, God, that temptation isn't the same thing as sin. We're tempted, God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to say no to sin in all its forms and to say yes to you. But God, we also wanna confess, we have said yes to our wrong desires, God, that have been banging around in us and have just dirtied ourselves with sin. And so Jesus, we come to you this morning. We come to you asking you for forgiveness, asking you to, to cleanse us. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that this church would be a place known for authenticity, known for transparency, known for honesty about the most intimate details of life so that we could walk in the purity that you long for your bride, God. Help us to walk in the power of the gospel. And may we see as a church our sexuality and our purity flowing from gospel purity. We ask this in your name. Amen.